Imagine your new bathroom, a sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. The steak, egg, and cheese bagel is back at McDonald's. Order ahead on the app and pick up curbside. Price and participation may vary. McD app download and registration required. IPMNation.com Tonight on the MCU Live Edition, we'll be talking with James O'Brien. This guy's run nearly 200 political campaigns. This ought to be interesting. Really looking forward to talking to him. And of course, Senator Marco Rubio continues hanging out here on a Saturday night, just awkwardly uh, maintaining eye contact with me while guzzling water. Uh, it just gets stranger with this guy. He never leaves. Doesn't he have a job back in Washington? Anyway, it's April 20th, 2013, just after 11 p.m. in the Eastern Time Zone. Matt Connerton Unleashed starts right now. Matt Donnerton Unleashed.
Okay, everybody, we have uh, James O'Brien here on the phone with us. How are you tonight, James? I'm very good. How are you? Very good, very good. Um, very anxious to talk with you. Um, you uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of um, folks on the show who've done various things in politics, but my understanding is that you've uh, you've run close to 200 political campaigns. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, actually, when you consider a lot of people's careers in politics, it's actually not even that many. <laughs> I think a lot of people, uh, you know, read that in my bio, um, you know, and they think maybe it's something more than it actually is. There's a lot of people have actually run hundreds more campaigns in their career, um, you know, as sort of a matter of fact in politics. Sure, sure. Um, now, where are you from? You're from, uh, is it Missouri? Yeah, actually, I'm born uh, in New Jersey. Um, oh, okay. We have to stay with to marry my wife, Laura. Um, and then uh, we now live in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. And where are the uh, the campaigns that you've run? Have you have you done this in various places that you've lived? Yeah. In fact, um, yeah, probably did more than half of them in New Jersey. Okay. You know, city council races, uh, you know, county um, you know, state, state assembly races, but also, um, in probably 25 other states plus New Jersey, uh, number in, in Michigan, Missouri, Louisiana, um, and at various levels from, um, uh, U.S. Senate, you know, all the way down to school board. Sure. Sure. Wow. Um, and how long have you been doing this? You know, I got a really early start. I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, the first time I was ever paid to do um, a campaign, which is how I sort of count, um, you know, campaigns. It's, it's, you know, any new race that I'm actually paid for, I sort of, you know, put up on the on the, on the, on the tote board there. Um, so, you know, it could be anything from doing a couple of mail pieces to actually being, you know, a campaign manager or more than likely a general consultant. Sure, sure. And what uh, what got you started in in politics? I mean, you, you you started at such a young age. What what got you motivated to want to um, you know, lots of people get interested in politics at a young age, but to actually want to do something to actively participate beyond just voting or you know holding a sign for a candidate. What was it that motivated you to to want to actually get involved and and uh, you know and, and and really be active in campaigns? Sure, you know, it was really I really owe it to my mother. And uh, she came from a very active uh, uh, Democratic family in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Yeah. And uh, my my grandpa, um, who uh, he actually passed away when he was 98, um, just lived a, a fantastic life. He was Ward Two chairman of the Elizabeth Democratic Party. And um, my mother, though, uh, was very active in the Republican Party in East Brunswick, where I grew up. And um, I lost my dad at an early age. I was I was 15, um, and my parents had had me pretty late in life. So uh, my mom sort of got reactivated in politics after my dad passed away and brought me along. And I met a really great group of people. Um, but I also thought that it was going to be something that was going to be very intimidating. You know, people who would, you know, take sort of a younger person and, you know, maybe give them whatever menial jobs or not listen to them. And what I found was really quite the opposite, that it was, it was you know, very approachable, that people really wanted input, you know, from a, a diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I sort of found out, I guess, I had an act for, you know, for writing. and did my first direct mail piece. I was uh, 16 years old. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, pretty quickly after that, I, I, I wrote my first 30-second TV commercial, um, wow. you know, which aired with, like, one of the sort of local political you know, cable ads that you, that you see. Um, and I was uh, 17, maybe 18 years old when I wrote that. Um, and it was quite a substantial campaign, actually. And it was one of the probably earliest local races that ran on cable television, um, at least in New Jersey, um, you know, from what I know. Yeah. And uh, it really started a, you know, a love affair with media. And, um, but I tell you, politics is a, is a tough business. And from my perspective, it's actually not a very lucrative one. Yeah. So a lot of people are always like, oh, there's, you know, there's too much money in politics. One of, I think, our fundamental problems is there's not enough money in politics. And there's not a whole lot of incentive for 
a lot of the, the sort of best, I think, to either get into politics or to stay in it. Um, because the price you pay is also, you know, extremely high, too, because of the personal nature of it. Sure. Well, too, um, it, it's interesting from the in, in terms of it not being very lucrative from from the the position of someone who's uh, working on a campaign or running a campaign. You know, it's also not steady, dependable work. You know, once that campaign's over, you're either hopefully you're getting hired by uh, by another campaign or you might be off to do something else in the meantime. It's not, uh, you know, it's not something where you can depend on it to be a full time job for an indefinite amount of time, you know, unless unless you win and then maybe you get hired to be uh, part of the, the cabinet <laughs> of, of whoever, uh, right, right. whoever won. Yeah, but it, uh, it, yeah, it's totally true. I spent a good amount of time, um, uh, at least on a number of occasions, I should say a good amount of time, you know, uh, speaking to young people about being involved in politics. Mm -hmm. Um, I've gone back to American University uh, where I study. They have a tremendous campaign management institute, you know, for anybody who's interested in the best training you can get is hands-on. And I've always been that way, you know, been sort of more entrepreneurial than, than a student, but the approach that CMI takes at American University is really tremendous. They they bring in some of the best consultants in the world to, to sort of help teach that program. It's pretty intensive. Um, and um, I've, I guess I was back there one time to to talk, you know, more about the, the business of politics than, you know, the actual tactics or media or whatever that go into it. Yeah, and, and that's one of the insights. It's, it's very difficult. If you look at it from a business perspective, and, you know, what I've done a lot more um, since those days is, is work with different um, work with different technology startup companies. And one of the first things you look at is addressable market. You know, how big is the market that you're – so we started our first business, my first agency in New Jersey. There was about a $19 million market hmm. for um, – that was like the political spend sort of – I guess we're going back about 20 years now. Yeah. That is a teeny, tiny market. Especially when you consider, you know, there's other competitors, um, you know, that are fighting you for such a tiny market. You would never start a business thinking that there was only, you know, 19 million in potential dollars to get. Sure. And you add in the fact that, you know, you really sort of need to pick a spot. That's changing a little bit now, but so if you can only run Republican campaigns, then that takes half the market away immediately because you can't do any Democrat races. Sure, sure. So. It's really just, it's a business that's sort of stacked against the people who are in it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And when you, um, when you go for the, uh, the, the training, you mentioned the, the training program at the university, is that, I'm, I'm really curious about that. Is that, uh, is it sort of nonpartisan and how they, do they train you in this sort of generic nonpartisan way, how to run a, a campaign, or how do they approach that? Or is it? Or are there are there classes for how to run a Republican campaign and classes for how to run a Democratic campaign? Or how does that work? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's that, that, that's sort of a great question because they definitely treat everyone the same in terms of the class. I mean, you do get a certain candidate, you know, a, a campaign to work on, um, and I believe that they, if memory serves, they try to line up. You know, Republicans will do a Republican race. As real world as possible. Yeah. Um, just you know, the whole getting that little hands-on thing, but um, you know, and in general, I think you know the best way to run to run races are are sort of the same. And the Democrats have recently, I think, really pulled ahead of Republicans in terms of their use of technology and um, the type of data that they're able to collect and use. The Democrats have been unbelievably more effective really based off of the work of, of one or two companies. And um, I think, you know, even President Obama's had a, a very unfair advantage over Republicans, and to his, you know, team's credit. Um, but right now, Republicans, if I had to say anything, they're so far behind the eight ball when it comes to actually understanding big data, mm -hmm. how to collect it, how to use it, um, and then how to do it consistently. Uh, something that's... Um, it, you know, it's probably going to have more of an impact on policy in the next, you know, five to ten years of this country than, than like, anything. Yeah, that's something that we've kind of heard a lot of, I think, in the in the postmortem of the uh, 
of the uh, you know the the 2012 uh, presidential campaign and and also too um, you know you you talked about the the data aspect of it but even just simple things like how to effectively use Twitter and Facebook I've I've heard the observation made that uh, Republicans seem to really be behind Democrats you know in in that matter of course as we also saw. Uh, during 2012, sometimes uh, Republicans, when they do try to express themselves, they end up, you know, making uh, comments like uh, Todd Akin's uh, legitimate rape uh, <laughs> comment or something like that, um, which, which would have easily fit into a tweet. So Todd was actually my congressman when I lived in, in uh, Kirkwood, Missouri. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, it, it, it came from a district where, um you know, it, it's pretty much always going to be a Republican representing it. And, you know, he's pretty safe. Uh, and the guy who was interviewing him when he when he sort of said the, the whole, you know, started that, that whole huge issue, um, this guy, Charles Jaco, I mean, had been, you know, famous for going after conservatives and asking sort of tricky questions and, you know, just the way he worded it. And I was really surprised that, that you know, that, Congressman Aiken was caught so, sort of like so flat-footed <laughs> that he wouldn't sort of be ready for the fact that Jaco would, you know, be trying to undermine everything that he said. Yeah, and trying to get him to say something stupid, which you know he inevitably did. <laughs> he certainly did. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, let, let's get back to you. So you started the agency. Uh, you started an agency while you were in New Jersey. And um, yep. and you you were talking about you know it's it's a it's a risky proposition because the the pie is so small at least in, in your case so how did that how did it go so you started and were you able to immediately get clients to uh, you know who were willing to hire you for their campaigns or how did that work yeah you know and what we did was I mean we had actually a very specific business plan um, which really helped I mean we went about. Um, you know, writing it and then trying to execute it, which we did actually very well. Mm-hmm. And again, we learned more, you know, we were very effective politically. And uh, one, so one of the things we were looking to do was to hire, you know, a certain number of local races, a certain number of county and then state level races, and run them in a way that was a little more coordinated and also understanding, like, when you can coordinate um, campaigns and when you can't, depending on the type of money and the contributions that, that come in. Yeah. But... So, you know, it was sort of an eye toward, you know, how you know, how can you get efficiencies out of different groups of clients? Um, or maybe, you know, the, the county or a state assembly person might have, you know, a decent budget, but their local races that really help support what they're doing don't. But a local race might be able to, you know, it's easier to get volunteers, you know, for a mayoral campaign than it generally is for like a, a state assembly race. Mm-hmm. That's a little like less removed from communities. So, you know, we were trying to put some of those things together, and we're very effective. And I think we started with four clients our first year, who was um, our first big client was Edison, New Jersey, and they all race there. And it was a tough uphill battle. I mean, pretty much the Republicans have really never had much of a chance in Edison. But, you know, we put up a really strong fight, which helped, um, you know, Republican candidates up ballot from, from them. So the Democrats have to put more resources in those local races that we made very competitive. Yeah, and then you start to win some of them. Yeah. People build a base. So I think we started with four, and then um, the next cycle we were at 26. And, yeah, we started to make a business out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And how many um, how many campaigns would would you take on at once? Would you do multiple campaigns at once as an agency, or would you – tend to focus on oh, yeah. one how does that work yeah so you know it's um um you know in certain cycles i've been a campaign manager you know so you would maybe do like one big race like i think the largest race i did was um uh, a u.s senate race uh a state uh, a state rep ran against um carl levin for u.s senate okay. in michigan yeah and um, I went up there to manage that, so I wasn't doing any other races at that time. Yeah. Um, but for almost every other cycle, yeah, you would basically get you know as much work as you know as your team could handle. So. And um, how much does uh, 
how much does your win loss record come into play in terms of of getting clients? Because you know you you see a lot of um, you see a lot of folks who who get hired to run a campaign and maybe they had lost a previous campaign that was high profile, but they uh. Oh. traditional media sources yeah oh i just heard a beep you still there the just because deal hey oh what's this breakfast from mickey d's from me yep why because it's morning and you like mcdonald's let's eat while it's hot there's a deal for every act of kindness at mcdonald's the steak egg and cheese bagel is back at mcdonald's order ahead on the app and pick up curbside Price and participation may vary. McD app download and registration required. I'm Frank, and I'm not a big fan of BJ's Wholesale Club super low gas prices. I don't trust things that low. Started in 92. Big office Christmas party. Come on, join the limbo line. Now I see a chiropractor. So, no, BJ's. I don't want super low gas prices. Okay, then. But if you'd like super low gas prices and a $40 digital BJ's gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club. Opening soon in New Albany. Visit BJ's.com slash New Albany or the BJ's Membership Center on North Hamilton Road. Limited time offer, new members only. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I heard no an odd, odd odd, sound there, lost it there just for a second. So, now tell me about uh, the uh, publishing aspect of your career because you're, you're also a former publisher of Campaigns and Elections magazine. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I had uh, found my, my first, uh, had, had always had a big love of magazines. And um, so, you know, being involved in politics, CNE was, you know, it, it, it's like the Bible of the industry. Um, and uh, years ago, I had a, one of my first big corporate clients as a medical publisher, and um, I had met him. He had been a, a political client before he was a corporate client, and um, so I put sort of the first copy of Campaigns and Elections on his desk, and he ended up buying it, um, I guess probably about 10 years later. Yeah. And... So I always sort of had this relationship, this love affair with campaigns and elections. And then um, when um, he went to sell it, he asked me if I would be the publisher through the transition and then see, you know, if I could stay with the business or, huh. you know, or what have you. So for about six months, I, I took campaigns and elections through an ownership transition. And, um, you know, it was a really tough period for the magazine, but it was a great business challenge. You know, I think we ultimately did a really good job with it. And um, the new publisher um, is doing a, a fantastic job with the title. I mean, they've really, the content in it is as good as I've ever seen it. And, um, you know, just it continues to be just a really solid brand, you know, and a tremendous information resource for really anybody you know, who's interested in politics. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And you've done a lot of uh, stuff online, too, right? Like a lot of... Um... Uh, online shows and some network television and radio. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, um, I, I certainly mean, as soon as, you know, the Internet started to, you know, to play in media, you know, as soon as America Online became popular, I was just, you know, enthralled with, with all of it and realized that, you know, this is the future, you know, it's going to impact certainly politics, but really business, you know, and consumers' lives, you know, even more. So, I really went in that direction, you know, with my career, thinking maybe one day, okay, you know, I'll get back to D.C., I'll take, you know, I'll try to take what I learned and, you know, apply it to some good political causes and just sort of trying to fix, I think, the broken system that we have. Yeah. And um, I'm, start, I'm starting to think about that a little bit more. You know, it's great living back in Alexandria. And, um, you know, of course, everyone who's around here is, you know, extremely political, and um, so it's a great environment for just meeting really smart people yeah. who really care about what's going on. And um, so a huge part of that, I mean, the foundation of that nowadays, it, it's digital. I mean, I don't even think in terms of, you know, online or offline anymore for clients. It's just one big, you know, I, I guess you would say digital or online, but that leaves everything, you know. And if TV is a part of that or radio is a part of that, great, but... The 
central part, it really has to be digital. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and the money for that, quite frankly, you know, has been in, you know, in corporate accounts. Um, you know, I think they've definitely, you know, they've definitely led. And D.C., whether they're Democrats or Republicans, has always been, I think, about, I don't know, maybe like four or five years behind where technology is in the corporate sector. Um, and there's a, a few good agencies, um, you know, who have, you know, who don't follow that that sort of way of thinking, who have done a good job, but really not enough. I mean, there's not a critical mass, you know, in politics the way there is, you know, say, you know, in Silicon Valley or, you know, just with even the, the startup scene here in Washington, D.C. is, is unbelievable. Um, I mean, we started doing startups, you know, probably 15 years ago here, and it was before the bubble. It was, you know, it was tremendous. It was exciting, but this is like the real deal now. I mean, these are real entrepreneurs, you know, lots of experience, even if they're younger, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing tremendous things, even which is why, you know, I'm very interested in what you're doing with the show um, and your website. And one of the reasons I wanted to be on was just to, you know, support another entrepreneur. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, doing something, uh, you know, unique and cool. Oh, I appreciate that very much, James. Thank you. Um, you why, why is it? Do you have any thoughts on why it is that, that Washington, um, in, in terms of campaigns and so forth, why they're sort of, I think you said about five years behind in, in terms of the, the you know, the, the technology and the, the digital aspect of it. Do, do you know why why that is? Yeah, you know, I, I think it goes back to the economics of the industry. Yeah. Where, you know, for one thing, the budgets still are infinitesimal. Um, you know, when they talk about a large race, like a governor's race, you know, um, say in California, I think, you know, one of the recent ones they spent like, I don't know, it was like 35 or $40 million and maybe like 400000 of it was on digital. You know, that's a tiny, <laughs> that might be a month's worth of spend, you know, for a small corporate account. Um, for, you know, and, and for, a, a, um, you know, a, a sort of a scalable account, like I don't want to compare apples and oranges, we think of the number of campaigns, tens of thousands, right? But most of them are local. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they're buying a couple hundred dollars in Facebook ads. Maybe they're doing some really cool stuff. Maybe they even have a free mobile app, you know, that they've put together, which um, I've definitely explored that. And that's a huge, you know, piece of the puzzle moving forward. Sure. Um, but really, very few campaigns are, are doing that, whereas almost every business, you know, is. Or is at least trying. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think another part of it too is um, the personality. Of a lot of people get involved in politics. There, there, there's a bunch of jackasses running around the city <laughs> who think they know a lot more than they do, and they think they're a lot more important than they really are. And those people tend, you know, not to learn stuff as quickly. Yeah, <laughs> as people, you know, who are, you know, maybe more. I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's it's really been a it's been a fact of life for me. You know, to sort of deal with that that sort of typical stereotypical personality of of why people think they hate politics. Well, it really exists, and it is why a lot of people, you know, either they stay away from it or they get really involved, but they only do it for maybe two or three years, and they come out saying, you know, it was a meat grinder. Yeah, and I hated half the people that I met. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, yeah. too many times I've heard you know people tell me that. Yeah, yeah. So what is what is it that's kept you not getting uh, sort of jaded or or frustrated? I mean, what is it that that keeps you engaged? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny is I've been incredibly frustrated and incredibly jaded in different ways at different times. I mean, I've always tried to keep um, you know at least one campaign you know, one candidate, you know, who's a friend or, you know, whatever, you know, in, um, you know, so I can sort of stay in tune with, with what things are going on. And um, but really the invitation to publish campaigns and elections really got me seriously thinking about, okay, you know, you have to go back and contribute and try to have an impact. And, um, you know, so just the small impact that I could have with CNE for the short time I was there, I was really happy and honored to do it and to keep that channel open what again what small part to play 
was great. But then it opens the doors for, okay, we need to get back in this and we need good people working really hard to try to figure out how to fix the system. Mm-hmm. So I think some of our biggest challenges are, are, are getting closer to having to be dealt with. And, um, and it's really not a partisan thing. It's, I mean, the Democrats and the Republicans, I think, equally are to blame for not addressing the real issues effectively. Yeah, and I agree. one of those real issues is just is the structure of our political system, mm-hmm. you know, which so much of it was designed for when we were um, groups of farmers, <laughs> you know, trying to govern ourselves. And we're not that anymore. That's a good point. <laughs> the, the, the only reason county government exists. Is you know in New Jersey we have uh, the Board of Chosen Freeholders it's called, and it was people could be a, a part of this or basically um, white farmers who own land who didn't have any debt against that land would be the board of would be like the freeholders, and but that county level of government um, never went away. Yeah. So it's it's like ridiculous now in New Jersey the entire state is considered an urban area it's so densely populated. Yeah, we still have county government, and and you know, I, I, listen. My mom works for the county government. My sister works for the county government. At one point, um, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, sort of downplay you know people's livelihoods or level of government or whatever. But practically speaking, you know, we could transfer that stuff to the local level. Some of it could go up to the state level. A good amount of it could probably just go away, right. and no one would really know the actual difference. <laughs> but because of politics, that doesn't happen. It gets bigger. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, Micah Will, who was uh, a recent guest on the show and is um, uh, one of our uh, most loyal listeners, is in the chat room. And uh, he's asking, what's the toughest campaign that you've worked on? Wow. Um, I bet there's been a few. There's huh? a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, being a Republican consultant, you know, sort of cutting my teeth in New Jersey... You know, so many of the campaigns we had were just completely uphill battles. So, and, you know, and again, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's other consultants who really make their bread and butter just electing, you know, congressmen, for example, who are pretty much 98% guaranteed to be reelected. So if you're running a congressional campaign, you know, you got oftentimes when you're a challenger, you know, a 1% or 2% chance of winning. So wow, it, it's hard to explain that, you know, to to people. And and so I would say my, my toughest race has been um, uh, helping um, someone who had been a, a, a good client of mine that became a good friend of mine, um, Jacob Turk, who was running against Emmanuel Cleaver in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And um, you talk about so you know here's a guy who's starting out with not much of a chance to beat. Um, you know, a district that's structured, designed specifically for the Democrat to win every single time. Yeah, and it's not a super minority majority district, um, which um, there's at least one that's like that in St. Louis on the other side of the state, Missouri. Um, that's really designed for a specific um, minority candidate to to win it. You know, to so there's some sort of you know a, a, a better you know more diverse racial makeup in Congress than there has been traditionally. Um, let's face it, we've been dominated by sort of middle to, you know, upper-aged white males forever. You know, that's finally starting to change a little bit. It's finally starting to get some diversity in, but it's still not enough and still not, you know, even as close to reflective of the demographics of the population. So, you know, there's a problem there, but it was amazing just, you know, trying to help a challenger in a really tough race. Um, and someone who had run, um, you know, in that case, you need a multi-cycle strategy. Like, you really can't just run once and put the fundraising base in place and raise your name ID across, you know, what's at least, you know, 700,000 voters. That's a lot of people, you know, to, to try to reach. Yeah. And to do it with all kinds of media bias, um, you know, it's even harder. So it was interesting when Jacob uh, had gotten close in the last midterms, um, and he had gotten more votes and did as well as anybody, some Republican candidates that spent 2 or $3 million and didn't do as well as Jacob did, um, just spending really in the very low six figures. So 
they actually went and changed the district. They, they drew the congressional district around his house. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which yeah, it didn't stop him from running, but it was just one of the most, you know, unbelievable stories. Wow. That, you know, you talk about kicking somebody when they're down. It's like they, <laughs> you know, it, and it really made me want to help him more. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, getting, you know, reporter, you know, television reporters and producers to believe that that's actually what happened. It's incredible. Even when there was, like, you know, written proof in Politico that Emanuel Cleaver was helping to lobby to get the state legislature, which was run by Republicans in Missouri, um, to really sort of screw this Republican candidate and make it even harder, you know, for him to just be competitive with Emanuel Cleaver. Yeah. So, I mean, that was really, um, it was a tough race. And then when that happened, and it was pretty clear that there were, the, there were Republicans um, behind that, too, and there had to be to make that happen because Republicans control the state legislature. Yeah. So, yeah, there's plenty of deals cut where Republicans up ballot, you know, are cutting deals to try to get urban support. Um, and, yeah, that was one of the aspects of that where, where Jacob was sort of a victim of some deal making that went on. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was quite an unbelievable situation. And if you read the dissent, because, um, of course, they, they sued to try to, um, um, uh, you know, cut off that plan for gerrymandering. Yeah. Um, if you read the dissent of the Missouri, um, I guess, three of their justices who dissented, they pretty much talk about Jacob's case specifically, <laughs> and it, it just, which made it even more incredible. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I, I've, that was a tough one. I've, I've heard of some pretty egregious incidents of gerrymandering but i've never heard of anything like that that's incredible that is amazing um micah in the chat room has another question for you he says uh james as a political consultant and campaigner can i stay in colorado or will i have to uh, relocate to dc to continue this as a long-term career sure you know um what's funny is there's pretty much no campaigns that go on in D.C. So all the campaign hiring that gets done, you know, really goes on in the states. That's interesting. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, um, it's definitely smarter to be, you know, and especially if you can get some experience, um, because there's so few people that actually really have good, you know, political experience. Um, and a lot of it is because, you know, particularly once, like, once I got a wife and kids, it made it even more impossible you know, to be a political consultant and be able to, you know, go three months, you know, to one state, go six months to another state, you know, have four months off. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you're taking subleasers out of your apartment in D.C., which I did once, and, you know, it's, it, um, you know, it, it's difficult. Yeah. So you can definitely stay in, you know, and, and maybe look for, you know, um, whether it's a state committee position, um, you know, and, uh, I think a lot more firms are looking to have offices um, that are not in Washington D.C. Um, and 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 that swings back and forth, you know, between you know, there's more regional powers. You know, probably five years ago, the D.C. firms sort of peaked again, and now they're all sort of decentralizing. You know, um, so like Austin, Texas, California is always its own political world. It's really very different from. Um, you know, every other state in the union. Um, so it, it's a great place to go out there. It's its own, it's just its own deal. Uh, it has, a, you know, it's pretty much its own political consultants. And, um, so yeah, in Colorado, um, is, um, is a very active state. It's actually kind of a swing state because of the, um, Hispanic population that's, that's there. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't, um, you know, don't sort of realize. So I think it's going to be hot. I think that, that, that would be a good place for the next few years. Um, you know, and, yeah, the other thing to consider is, like, in New Jersey, there's 500-plus municipalities. You know, I think there's 26 counties. So in a small geographic region, there's a lot of campaigns, and some of them get pretty decent budgets. Yeah. So it's easier to get the experience and to sign up for those campaigns. And so maybe that could be a downside in, like, a you know, Colorado or Wyoming. 
um, where the population just isn't quite as large. So you have less people running for office, you know, less potential candidates, yeah. less potential you know, campaigns to actually work on. But it sounds like the best strategy for someone like Micah probably is to just kind of, you know, immerse himself where he is and, and, and try to really get involved in working on local campaigns and, you know, try to move up that way as opposed to certainly yeah, as opposed to moving and, to D.C. or um, something. You know, and if there is interest in, in D.C., you know, certainly a number of the committees like, you know, if you can come into either the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation um, the Leadership Institute on the conservative side has a tremendous um, uh, grassroots training program, which um, a lot of people go through. And the Democrats have, you know, the, definitely, you know, the equivalent of these things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting those, um, and, and you can look at that as being more on the policy side of things, too, which we haven't even talked about tonight. You know, people ask me my position on issues, and I'm like, I, like, I really don't care. I mean, I have all my personal beliefs, but... It's about what my what my clients' positions are. Right, um, right. Who knows? That's another problem with the system. People really don't care about issues. The news media cares about issues the least. <laughs> yeah, they want to know what what the fight is. You know, what's the dirt that's going on? Oh, you sure. Know, what's yeah. the, uh, the the drama? And it's 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 just that state of affairs. Yeah. Um, let me ask you because you mentioned the Hispanic population in Colorado. I mean, what's your read on? Because um, this is what you do. I mean, what what does uh, what what does the Republican Party need to do in terms of campaigning and messaging and you know using using technology if if that gets um, figured out? I mean, what 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 about the Hispanic population? Because that's obviously a huge challenge, as we saw in twenty twelve for the Republican Party. Yeah, it's interesting. I did some work. Um when I was at American University, it was the, um, with the Republican National Hispanic Assembly, mm-hmm. just sort of the official um, RNC committee that does outreach in the community. And everyone asked, you know, so why do they want to hire, they're like, what are you, like James Patrick O'Brien, you're like Irish, and what, like a little English, a little Lithuanian. And I was like, well, so, and I didn't speak Spanish either. Yeah. I was like, well, they wanted to hire me because there's Puerto Rican Americans, there's Cuban Americans. Um, there's Mexican Americans who are all, you know, sort of fall into this title Hispanic, and uh, a lot of times those, those populations really don't get along the same way, you know, just that sort of normal, you know, it was back in the day when you know Italians didn't like the Irish and yeah, you know, and vice versa. We've always dealt with that in this country. So I was sort of a non-biased person um, because it was definitely true. You know, the Puerto Rican Americans had numbers in urban areas. Um, the Mexicans, America, they were definitely, you know, in certain very important states like California and Texas were extremely prevalent. And then the Cuban American population has a tremendous amount of money. And, and of course, they have one huge issue that has always been with Cuba and Castro and, mm-hmm. and that. Um, so the Republicans trying to organize are really kind of torn apart. And um, the Democrats, they were just able to do a much better job dominating urban area politics sure. where at least traditionally many Hispanic communities have grown out of. And I think where Republicans have the opportunity, and not just with Hispanic, but with African Americans, with, you know, sort of traditional minority groups who I don't think are really that minority anymore, right? I mean, yeah. so it becomes more of a class thing where it's like, okay, so find people who are in the middle class, you know, plenty of, you know, an incredible number of African Americans now, um, you know, Hispanics, the newer minorities that are moving in, you know, who are probably go maybe directly to um, the Democratic Party, but some of them are so traditional in their religious heritage, or they just have an extremely traditional worldview, that they might consider the Republican Party, you know, based on those conservative principles. Um, but I think for the Hispanic community, I think it's going to be much more it, there's some of those principles are definitely in common, but I think it's much more of an economic play. It becomes much more of a, of a pocketbook issue to say, hey, listen, you know, we care about, um, I think economic issues can be the Republicans' bread and butter. Yeah. But it's hard with Democrats, you know, giving away so much money and making the middle class really sort of the lower, almost working poor. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of middle class, you know, 
definitely come from a like middle class New Jersey guy. I mean, yeah. that, that's how I grew up, and but that standard of living that I think my father, you know, was able to have is now probably, you know, where then it was like solid middle class. Now it would be like lower middle class. Yeah, yeah. When you think of inflation and the cost and um, you know salary stagnation, you know, it's it's not pretty, and I think it's a lot worse than either Republicans or Democrats really want to lead on or talk about. Yeah, yeah. I do feel, too, by the way, that there's an opportunity, and, and this isn't anything original, what I'm saying. A lot of people have expressed this, but um, but I, I feel like there's an opportunity for the Republican Party with Hispanics. Uh, again, I mean, they have to, you know, Mitt Romney talking about self-deportation and all that's not, wasn't helpful. But um, on social issues, I feel like um, there's an opportunity there for Republicans to to reach out to Hispanics that that they've really missed. I mean, what do what do you think? Is, is that is that a possible bridge? Yeah, you know, and I would say when you look at Republicans, including the, the Bush family, they've been really success, really really successful in um, getting Hispanic support. Yeah, I don't think they really looked at it as okay. We're going to get this Hispanic group of people to vote for us now, and we're going to throw in some like. Spanish-sounding words, and you know, have a bilingual website. You know, like that. All that tactical stuff is is okay, but you know, they're really, they're obviously they're like real Texans, right? And so they have real support from other Texans who also happen to be of Hispanic descent, and there's an authenticity there to, uh, you know, an understanding of the communities, the issues that are going to be important. So, for all the talk of you know how do Republicans reach out, you know, to Hispanics, well. So let's find Republicans that, you know, are, are living in these communities. You know, let's find more, and, and this is a huge thing, find more candidates, you know, who yeah. are not old white guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, right. And, um, you know, so that voice isn't just being heard, but it's actually doing the speaking. Right. right? It's not, it's not the Republican Party. It's Hispanic Americans who happen to be Republican candidates, you know, who are going to, um, you know, not just be right on the issues, but they're going to be those people who are loved and supported. Yeah, yeah. W- well put. It's funny, you mentioned George W. Bush, and I kind of feel like it's um, those Texas governors seem to get it, because I would say the same thing about Rick Perry, you know, and I'm, I'm no fan of Rick Perry. I, I basically dislike him, but um, one thing that uh, I thought was interesting was during the um, during the debates, the the primary debates, he would talk about, and and he and it took some balls, I I think, to say this the way he said. Like he talked about wanting to allow um, Hispanics uh, or Mexicans, presumably living in the state, uh, not necessarily documented, but living in Texas, allow these kids to go to college in Texas at the in-state tuition rate. And, you know, the audience didn't like that, but he made that comment, you know, if you don't think these kids deserve a shot at an education, too, you just don't have a heart. And I remember thinking, wow, good for him, because whether you agree with him or not, that took balls to say that. But I think it's something about these Texas governors. They get it. I think George W. Bush had the same advantage um, because they, you know, they're they're actually dealing with with these people. They're not removed. They're not in some sort of bubble in terms of the Hispanic community. Exactly. You know, and it's even funny, it's like, you know, whether it's listening to me talk about it or you talk about it, we sound, we kind of sound like that traditional, like, we're like, you know, the media guy and the political consultant talking about, like, those people. Right. <laughs> right. And it kind of has, like, that almost awkward, like, flavor to it. You know, yeah. we have the, the, the sort of, just, you know, the, the talk. and. It, um, it, it just struck me when you were saying that. I'm listening and thinking, like, yeah, like, this is what it sounds like when it's, like, sort of not right. But, you know, for at least, you know, like, I, I you know, honestly, I had a totally random opportunity to work with the Hispanic Assembly, and I took it and learned what the politics were and what the issues were, you know, as a professional, and, and then figured out, I mean, you know, you, you look at the population and where they're growing, including states like Colorado, where everyone would think Texas or, you know, California, but sure. um, some of the other places, and it's like, wow, so if you can just have this one keystone demographic, you know, you could at least always win the White House, or, you know, or, so, which is why, you know, but Marco Rubio, again, we talk about authenticity, 
you know, someone who would actually be Hispanic to run, you know, for president would be, as a Republican, would be phenomenal. Yeah. And and we need that. I'm not, you know, I get asked a lot whether I'm like a conservative or how Republican I am. I think I put, uh, I, I put libertarian in my Facebook profile just to kind of mess with people. <laughs> and, and I'm really kind of a mix of like, I'm, I think I'm pretty progressive on that issue because I look at a program like Affirmative Action and I think, you know what? Of getting different populations and forcing them into other populations that don't want them. Um, and maybe the average Republican hates that idea, and I'm violating some philosophical principle of my own that I stood up for, but I, I think it kind of worked. Yeah. You know, and I don't look past, you know, things or solutions like that that maybe they don't line up, but I, I think it helped. I think it, it worked to a certain degree. Um, just to get different faces on college campuses, for example, and then you have the you know peer groups and people looking at people who are different from them and saying, "Hey, these are my peers." Sure. And you know, it's not just a bunch of other like sort of rich white kids. That's a good insight. Uh, before we start to wrap up, James, uh, uh, Micah has one more uh, question in the chat room: Is the GOP sure. at a crossroads, and what's the future hold for the party? Kind of a broad question, but. Um... <laughs> Yeah, you know, every party that loses is, is at the uh, crossroads. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Democrats thought they were at it after the last, really the last two midterm elections, um, you know, were were rough for uh, for, for Democrats. Um, you know, I, I think the crossroads for the GOP is really this data issue. And um, so there's a company called Van NGP, and um, they're basically a database company, but they started a business model years ago that um, you know, basically enabled state Democratic parties to become an economic partner and sort of force their like statewide and local races to use like this same platform to be able to um, you know document you know voter behavior, demographics, answers to poll questions, all the normal stuff into this one sort of centralized database that you know, Democrat causes, candidates can basically rent and get into and um, and can choose to share that data, you know, with whoever they want. So the Republicans have had some things that are a little voter vault and a couple things, nothing really like what Van NGP does and now a couple other companies too. Yeah. So there's a number, there, there are more platforms like rvotes.com um, is actually the guy who developed the platform that Van NGP uses um, got bought out, and um, he was able to start his own company, but can only sell to Republicans. And not surprisingly, most Republicans don't want to work with this guy because no one wants to share their data on the Republican side. Yeah. And it's a huge problem right now because so mm -hmm. the Democrats have had a culture of sharing data. And I've always wondered, and not, not, not to be like not objective, but I've always wondered how the privacy policies on a number of their websites line up to their actual data practices. There's a tremendous amount of sharing and giving away of information that goes on. Um, but I'm sure they have good attorneys, too, that are looking at that stuff. But I know that there has to be some major issues there, um, you know, for the Democrats and tracking cookies and getting just all into the, the technology, you know, side of it, where they have maybe, you know, senators and congressmen who are talking about privacy that don't realize the um, sort of anti-privacy tactics that their own campaigns are using uh, um, that the Republicans could only wish they had access to. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's interesting. <laughs> that, that, that's the big crossroads that I think. Yeah, yeah. Micah definitely identifies you, he says in the uh, chat room. I think he's my political doppelganger. So uh, he, he he definitely likes what uh, likes what you've had to say. I think that's a great compliment. Yeah, yeah oh, ab absolutely. Yeah, James. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have um, where where can people find you online? Do you have a blog or or anything like that where people can kind of keep up on um, what you're thinking and discussing? Yeah, yeah. And... I'm just about you know, Quora uh, launched a new blog product that I'm just about to uh, um, transfer some posts over from another blog and and, and start at it with some, you know, actual veracity. Um, mm. uh, so it's going to be at trusted.quora.com. Um, and then um, I work with uh, Big White Sky. So you can always get me at jobryan at bigwhitesky.com. Okay. I've got their website. Tremendous creative development agency um, based out of St. Louis and now offices uh, here in Alexandria. 
Oh, very good. Very good. Okay. So uh, a couple things there to check out. Well, James, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thanks for joining us here tonight. And um, we'll have to have you back again soon if you're willing, because this is uh, this has been really good and, and informative, too. I, I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, that's my, my favorite kind of guest is uh, someone I can learn something from. So very glad you were able to join us tonight. Well, you know, I, I did too. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be asked to be on the show and really happy to contribute. Anytime I can contribute in the future, yeah, please. Um, um, I, I like working with your team. Um, really efficient and great. And uh, I hope to do it again sometime soon. Awesome. Absolutely. We will do that. Uh, thank you very much, James. Okay. Thank you, Matt. All right. Have a good night. Bye bye. Good night. Bye. All right, so that was James O'Brien, and uh, that was really cool. I enjoyed talking with him a lot. We'll definitely have to have him on again soon. And um, he's very—he uh, he seems to really like what we're doing here at IPMNation.com and and so forth. So, and uh, he paid the staff a compliment, which I assume by the the staff he means Little Mel, because she's the one who does the booking here on the show. So, um, so we'll begin to wrap up. And uh, again, Micah, who was on recently last week, I think, kind of all blurs together. But uh, Micah, thanks for the great questions in the chat room. Always, uh, always good. And uh, I appreciate his support as well. We saw Slicko in the chat room earlier, but I think he bailed. Um, so all kinds of stuff going on here at IPMNation.com. Uh, speaking of Little Mel, of course, uh, Monday night at 10.30 p.m. Uh, she was off last week, but the return of No Boundaries is the number one show here on IPMNation.com. And we have tons of new programming that we've added just recently, too. Uh, if you go to IPMNation.com slash live channel, you can see the whole schedule, the whole slate of live programming. Also, just today, I uploaded some new interviews to the Matt Connerton Unleashed page on IPMNation.com. If you go to the interview segment section, you can see all those. Uh, my recent interview with the good folks from Honor and Remember is there, as well as uh, some other things. Um, a whole bunch of interviews. Yeah, You'll just have to go and look at the list. And uh, by the way, um, I want to mention too, this coming Wednesday on Rock, Paper, Hand Grenades, which is Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, my good friend, my favorite Republican, the Honorable Gary S. Hopper, will not be there. So he's entrusting the show to me that night. And typically when Gary's not around, uh, he books someone to sit there with me or... Um, or we run a repeat, but this time he is actually trusting me to host the show without him and without uh, someone that he has put there to be with me that day. He's let me book the guest. He's, he's entrusted me with this coming Wednesday's rock, paper, hand grenades. And I don't know why, but I, and I won't let him down, but I've, I've always kind of wondered if he's a little bit afraid to, uh, afraid to, to let me just completely take the reins of the show when he's not there because um, maybe he's afraid it'll turn to Matt Connerton unleashed, but, uh, but no, it'll be a good show. It'll be a good show. Uh, Tony Soltani is going to be joining us. He's one of my favorite guests ever on the television edition of unleashed and on rock, paper, hand grenades. Tony is amazing and he might be bringing someone with him and I'm just going to leave it at that. It could be a very, very interesting rock, paper, hand grenades. Uh, Micah in the chat room says, Little Mel's uh, the shit, I guess. Uh, it's censored. Ustream censors our chat room activity. So um, anyway, yeah, she is. Okay. Oh, that was Mel who typed that. Okay. Mel's agreeing. Um, all right. You can tell I'm tired because I'm actually reading the chat room to you, even though you can see it if you're listening to the show. So anyway, uh, thanks everybody. We're going to wrap up. Uh, I'm going to close with one more song. Let's make this show number one. Well, I don't think little bell's going to like that Micah. Anyway, <laughs> actually to be completely honest with you, statistically, I would have to literally double my audience to catch up with Mel. So anyway, uh, we're going to wrap up with one more track. Tonight, I opened the show tonight with Alice Cooper election, I thought, because uh, James O'Brien coming onto the show, whereas he's run so many campaigns, election would be an appropriate track to open the show with tonight. And I'm going to close with an Alice Cooper song, too, because just like I look for any excuse to play a Kiss song, uh, Alice Cooper is also someone I look for an excuse to play one of his songs. So I love Alice Cooper almost but not quite as much as I love Kiss. So I'm going to close with, uh, this one's a little cynical, but 
It's one of my favorite Alice Cooper tracks and kind of relates to the show. This is Lost in America from Alice Cooper to close tonight's edition of Matt Connerton Unleashed. Thanks, everybody. Imagine your new bathroom, a sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels. 
This summer, when the sun's down, turn up the fun at Cedar Point Nights. The ultimate after-dark beach party is every night from July 29th through August 21st. Dance with throwback DJ sets, challenge your friends with beach games, or just take it easy at fire pits lining Cedar Point's legendary mile-long beach. Then enjoy the new Lake Erie Luau, a food experience like no other. For a limited time, get park admission, luau tastings, and parking for just $69.99. Only at cedarpoint.com. 